hopefully everybody is aware, you know, this is uh, Father's Day weekend. Uh, we meet on Saturdays, not Sundays. It'll be uh, celebrated, you know, around the country tomorrow uh, on Sunday. But I want to ask, you know, if, if you're uh, a father, would you mind standing uh, for just a moment? Um, yeah. My, my prayer for us uh, as fathers, um, and I want to ask that uh, everybody in the room, you know, to be in prayer for your fathers, whether they're here, whether they've passed along or not, uh, but be in prayer for them and prayer about uh, the influence they've had on your lives. Uh, but for the guys that are here today, tonight, that are standing, my prayer is that God would give us wisdom and discernment, that God would give us the courage to follow Him with humility and also tenacity, that we wouldn't give up, and that we would be courageous enough to lead our families and friends and loved ones in the truth of God's Word without apology. Um, but we would do that with grace and humility. And so my prayer for all of us here, men that are fathers, that we would do that. Um, and watch this, not only with your immediate family, but there's a lot of people that look up to you as a father, even though you might not be their actual dad. So... Uh, that influence uh, goes widespread, widespread, okay? So God bless you. Why don't you be seated? I get choked up because my father-in-law is here. His birthday is Monday, and uh, he's been an incredible father figure to me when uh, mine was so lacking and uh, extremely blessed to have been able to be a part of your family, Bill. And uh, you've impacted my life in ways that you don't know. And that's uh, incredibly appreciated. I'd rather say that now here with you here than one day when you're gone. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's really healthy and I plan on him being here for much longer. Amen? So if you have your Bibles, you have your notes, I want to ask you to retrieve them. <clears throat> I do have it there for you in the Scriptures version. Um, we are going to cover verses 20 <clears throat> through 38 down through the end of this chapter. And it is actually a very familiar passage. At least there are two verses in here that probably everybody in the room has either heard or were fairly familiar with. Um. The one is when Jesus says to Judas, uh, whatever you do, go and, go and do it quickly. When he goes out and Satan enters him, everybody's like, yeah, that, this is the Last Supper, you know, and, and, uh, and Satan goes out and, I mean, he goes out and Satan comes in him and, and, um, and he, you know, betrays Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. The other one is uh, the very famous prophecy that Jesus said, when Peter's like, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus goes, really? <laughs> because before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. Everybody's real familiar with those two elements, right? I'm assuming that you're somewhat familiar with those two elements of this story. What's actually pretty fascinating, at least for me, uh, is the connection between Peter and Judas, in this story. I thought it was pretty fascinating. Anyways, let's look at this together. Uh, John chapter 13, starting with verse 20. And it's, uh, I've got it here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And I want to stop there just for a second. I've got a note here for you on your notes. I went ahead and wrote it out that this statement dealing with the connection between Yeshua and His sent ones, His disciples, and with the Father is the connecting theme throughout the rest of this chapter, these, these few verses here. It's a connecting theme that the, those that receive my disciples or the people that I'm sending 
are not only receiving them, but they're receiving me. And if they receive me, then they're receiving the Father. There's this incredible connection that when you receive somebody that's from Yeshua, you're actually receiving Yeshua. And if you're receiving Yeshua, then you're actually receiving the Father. There's no separation between the two. Um, there's passages where like when Jesus shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, Who, you know, what, what are you talking about? Other places where he says, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Uh, there's this connection that we cannot separate or, or that we shouldn't separate ourselves so much from Jesus, Yeshua, and the Father, because watch this, we are his ambassadors representing him. In all that that means, including authority. We, we keep forgetting that. We think that we're just these little peon people running around on this ball called the globe. There's this war going on in heaven. We're waiting for that to get settled. And then God's going to put us back in Eden. And I don't know, we're going to be, I don't know, riding lions and feeding giraffes. And, or, 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 you know, I don't know what, what it is that's going through our head that we think. But if you go back to Genesis, he said, uh, that he put man in the garden and he says, and you are to rule and reign over this and over everything that walks on this earth. And that's where he's going to put us back. Why? Because we're his representatives in this created realm. So anyhow, th there's, this is connecting, this, this connection between us and our Savior and the Father is this theme in here that we're going to see, <clears throat> I hope, as we look at this thing unfold, let's go on with verse 21, down through verse 25. It says, when Yeshua said this, he was troubled in his spirit and witnessed and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you shall deliver me up. The taught ones, the disciples looked at one another, doubting who he was talking about. One of his taught ones, whom Yeshua loved, was reclining on the bosom of Yeshua Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, then mentioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And leaning back on the breast of Yeshua, he said to him, Master, who is it? Let's stop here for a second. Anybody here see the famous pictures of the Last Supper and all that? And they're all sitting at the table and they're all leaning and, you know, with it, all that weirdness. Um, they weren't sitting at tables. Uh, this is in first century Middle East, uh, there in Israel, and that what they would commonly do is uh, they would have a place pretty much on the floor where all the food was, and they would all basically kind of sit and recline, almost leaning backward, uh, sitting around eating. Instead of sitting at a table, on table and chairs, they're sitting around kind of on the floor. And so this is why, you know, they, they would be leaning, you know, maybe on one, one elbow or whatever, whatever would be most comfortable for them. At my age with a bad knee, it's hard to get up and down. So I'm usually sitting in weird positions uh, if you get me down on the floor. So it just depends on your particular situation. But anyhow, they, they would have been all on the floor. And so this is why it would have been so natural for, and the debate is, is this John? I, I believe it is John. I think the debate's really over, but people still debate who this is really talking about because John in here in this gospel, he's very, very humble. He really doesn't point, uh, make a point to, uh, uh, or point, uh, bring himself to light in this gospel. Uh, and so he says, you know, it's, it's the one, uh, you know, whom Yeshua loved. He was his, his beloved one. Um, and uh, he, he leans up against him and he says, who is it? So let's go back to this because Miss Susan brought this out which, uh, when she was talking to the kids, which is excellent. These guys, these people, they've been around each other for some time now. They've been through a lot, right? They've seen Lazarus, Eleazar, God helped, that's his name. They've seen him dead, resurrected. They've 
Peter has walked on water. They've been out in the uh, out in the sea thinking they were going to die. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. All that they've been through. Uh, they've been in storms. They've they've watched Jesus feed tens of thousands. You know, we said one of them was probably close to 10,000 when he fed the 5,000. Then he fed the 4,000 again. And that, that's just the men. And he's seen him do all this, you know, with basically a sack lunch. They're seeing all these things happen. They, they know that Jesus is, he's troubled. And he's been talking about dying. This is not, hasn't been a secret up to this point. Um, and they say, and, and he's bringing it out again because before he did say, not all of you are clean when they did the, the foot washing. So he's like, they got to be thinking, okay, he just said one of us ain't right in Texan. One of us ain't, we ain't all right. Uh, and then now he is point blank saying, one of you will betray me. One of you will deliver me up. They're all going, who is he talking about? That's important to remember. We all know because of hindsight, we've read the end of the book, all that other stuff. We know he's talking about Judas. We're all thinking, you know, you know, Judas is this evil, mean, and nasty person. You know, that's why the slang, you know, well, you Judas, you know, you betrayed somebody. You, you know, you Judas. Um, they didn't know that it was Judas. And Judas also took care of the money. Now, John tells us that Judas was a thief. But that's also after the fact, because he's looking back. And then, have you ever noticed how when somebody's true character comes out, some of you already shaking your head, and then your mind starts replaying life events, and you go, yep, should have seen that. Yeah, I didn't notice. Oh, ooh, that was really big. And I looked right over that, because I just trusted them, didn't think... Can I, am I, I'm not the only one that's ever been there, right? And so I'm sure that's what was happening with John plus the Holy Spirit revealing it to him. But they didn't know that it was Judas. Judas took care of the money. It wasn't Matthew. Matthew, you know, was the tax collector. Of course, most people didn't like, didn't like the tax collectors because they were like thieves, um, but, uh, isn't that interesting? It wasn't the guy that made his living dealing with money. It was somebody else who, when you get into a deeper study on Judas and his background was more of a, which makes sense with what's, with what he's about to do. He was more of a zealot. Meaning if you want somebody guarding the money, you want somebody that's tough and won't back down. Because you, you're walking through the countryside, you know, uh, you know, robbers, thieves, whatever. So give it to the guy that, uh, you know, will fight for it. Give it to the guy that's really going to protect it. And I'm sure that was the reasoning behind some of that. That's still speculation, but still, you can kind of start looking at these patterns and go, okay, well, then that actually makes sense. And we know that... <clears throat> Judas was somewhat of a zealot and he had this idea about pushing Rome out and then his picture of the Messiah being the son of David Messiah, not the son of Joseph Messiah, right? So that he's going to come as this conquering king, not the suffering servant. And that when the conquering king comes, he's going to push Rome out, Israel's going to rule the world, and there's going to have world peace. Rome is the big dog in the, in the world right now, and they are also putting their thumb on Israel. So Judas, having a goal in mind of helping the Messiah reveal himself and kick Rome out, does what he ends up doing. But the interesting, th interesting thing is that uh, the disciples didn't know that it was Judas. They didn't know. They're all asking, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Could it be me? In verse 21, when he says this, it says that he was troubled in his spirit. Yeshua is troubled 
in his spirit or that his spirit is stirred up within him because of what he just said and how that's connected to the betrayal of Judas as his follower, and watch this, and failure of Peter as his close disciple. One betrays him to force a situation. The other fails because of self-survival. Peter and Judas both fail miserably. We'll get to that later. <clears throat> and then it says that he stirred up within him, and then it says, truly, truly. We've mentioned this before, that when you see something repeated, and like Yeshua will say this a lot, truly, truly, I say to you, it's, it's like the equivalent of us saying, listen, I'm telling you the truth, you need to pay attention. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it would have also, if it would have been like in Hebrew, it would have been amen, amen. Verily, verily, or truly, truly. Uh, agreement, agreement. This is, it's saying I agree that this is, this is truth. It would be the equivalent of just saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something, and this is the truth, and you need to pay attention. So he says, truly, truly, I'm saying to you that one of you is going to deliver me up. Um. So then what's happening is they're all, they're all eating. They're sitting around. John is evidently sitting right next to Yeshua, and Peter motions to him, find out who it is. Because they're all doubting, right? So let's go on, verse 26. So Yeshua answers him. Because John, I believe it's John, he goes, Jesus, who is it? So in verse 26, it says, Yeshua answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Yehuda of Kerith, or Judah Iscariot, son of Shimon. And after the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Yeshua therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Look at this. But no one at the table knew why he said this to him. They didn't pick up on it. For some were supposing because Yehuda had the bag that Yeshua was saying to him, buy what we need for the festival or that he should give somewhat to the poor. So having received the piece of bread, he then went out straightway or went out immediately and it was nighttime. There's a lot in there, a lot. Um, so first of all, it says, Yeshua answered John, and he says, listen, it's going to be the one to whom I give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. Let me read it to you the way I wrote this down. This action was not uncommon and was an act of friendship and trust. It would be equal to saying that this is my food, but I give it to you freely. This act of friendship is the very act that signaled the betrayal of friendship by Judas. So, in other words, it was common sitting around a table among friends. You ever go out to eat? You've, you've bought a meal or whatever? You say, here, no, 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 you need to try this, Right? Oh, this is really, really good. You need, to, you need to try it. I mean, we even do that kind of thing today. Would you do that with a stranger? No. <laughs> take your, hey, hey, here, take a bite of my hot dog. You're really going to like this, right? Of course you wouldn't do that, right? You do that with close friends. So when he had taken the bread and he would dip it in the sauce and the stuff that they would, uh, and they would use the bread almost like a fork. You following that? And so would dip it uh, and would eat that, but sometimes they would say, here, no, and they would give it to a friend. And it's, a like, it's like saying, I'm going to share my food with you. Um, and even though I need this for sustenance, survival, I'm willing to give it to you. What is Yeshua about to go through? 
Oh my goodness. Talk about needing sustenance for survival. He's about to head to the garden and literally sweat drops of blood. There's a physical, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's a physical reality. That's not a metaphor. The small corpuscles in your skin can literally start to burst from that kind of pressure. And his sweat would have been reddish. Anyways, he's about to go through that, then scourged, nearly die from that. Beatings, beard yanked out, beaten beyond recognition. Carry his own cross and then crucified. He needs some strength, wouldn't you say? Physical strength. And even though he knows that's coming, he dips it in and goes, I'm going to give it to you and share with you the sustenance that I should need. It's an act of friendship. But that was not my point. I want you to see is that wasn't out of character or out of the ordinary or out of, it's, it's not something that you wouldn't have seen before. Like I said, for us in our culture, it'd be like all of us sitting around a table. We've all gone out to eat somewhere. We're having all these different foods. We're like, here, no, 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 try this. Oh, I haven't touched that side. Use a clean fork here. Right? The way we do, right? That's the equivalent of what Yeshua is doing here. Um, And it says that he gives him the bread, and when he does that, Satan enters him. For Judas, this is not just a failure, but literally a flaw in character and motivation. I'm sure no one else in this room has a character flaw, right? We've all got them, right? But Judas stems from his motivating factor. His motivation was political, military, Jesus and his disciples, watch this, is supposed to be motivated by love. It's supposed to be the number one characteristic of us. And this is why he gives him the bread. It's, the, it's the, this picture of friendship. And what's going to happen? I know I'm getting way ahead of myself, but when, you, when Judas comes to betray him, how does he do it? With a kiss of friendship a greeting of friendship. That's why he says, do you really, you betray the son of man with a kiss? He gave him a symbol of friendship and companionship. Even some have said it was a last ditch offer for him to repent of what he's about to do. But he, he couldn't see it because he was zoned in on his focus, on, on his goal. You see, that'll make a great leader with an organization. Doesn't necessarily mean you're godly. That makes sense? You can be so focused on what you need to do. Anybody like to watch golf? U.S. Open's going on right now, California. It's amazing to watch these guys. Bill and I were talking. He says, I don't know if I could do that with all those guys watching. I said, well, that's part of the, the pressure of, of playing professional golf. When you got all these people out there and to watch people and they're trying to sink a three-foot putt. You would think, well, that's easy. I've done it at putt-putt all the time. Yeah, but not when there's a few million dollars hanging in the balance for every single putt you miss. And every time, every time you miss one, then you start doubting yourself. Then you start, it just, it just, it just keeps adding on. Um, those that are really, really successful, it's not so much a physical issue as much as a mental issue. Being able to focus on what you need to do and being confident in what you know to do and then just getting up there and relaxed and doing it and not doubting yourself. Uh, That's called being in the zone and really focused. Well, that's good with sports and everything else, but if that zone for us and focus isn't on Yeshua and loving one another, you'll get off track. I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. It can be your family. It can be your job. It can be ministry. 
and you can still miss the boat. Why would I say that? Jesus himself says that many are going to come up to him and say, Lord, Lord, what are you talking about? We did great and mighty things in your name. He says, depart from me, those of you who worked iniquity. I never knew you. That's Christians that won't get in. So I believe that Judas was focused on his goal, which was to help who he believed was the Messiah do what he thought the Messiah was coming to do, and he gives in to his goal instead of being motivated by love for that Messiah. So because of that, Satan entered into him. And I believe that this is talking about Lucifer himself and not just a demon, not just a peon demon, but Satan himself. Because you see, Satan knew that something was up. He knew that Jesus was the Son of God. He knew that he came to try to restore everything, and he knew, at least, believed that he came to gather back all the nations. That's why he said, worship me, and I'll give you all of this stuff. And Jesus goes, you worship God and God alone, period. Um, So Satan knew that something was up. He wasn't sure totally how this would pan out, So he's directly involved at the highest level. Do you think he's changed his tactics? And I'm not talking about politics. Once again, the problem in our country and the problem in the world is not with politics, it's with the church. The church stopped being holy a long, long time ago. We've been pretty good about doing ministry. We've been pretty good about getting people to walk down an aisle. But as far as really, really, truly being sold out to God no matter what, loving Him and desiring to be holy before Him, no. That left a long time ago. Sorry to have to tell you that as a pastor, but I've seen the other side. And it's, it's just overwhelmingly not true. Um, so <clears throat> Satan entered into one of Yeshua's 12 disciples. I remember when I was in school, one of the first classes I had, and a really godly professor that was there, and he, he warned us. He said, I want, I want to warn you about something. He said, because when you go out there, you young, he said, you young preacher boys, when you go out there and you're going to pastor a church, he said, you need to be real careful because the devil's out there in every single church out there. And he says, the chances are that devil's going to show up in ways you don't think. He said, because you're going to think it's going to be some wiry, you know, strap guy, you know, whatever. He said, but there's a good chance it could be that blue-haired lady behind the organ. And he wasn't talking about the blue hair that we see today. He's talking about a gray-haired old lady. It could be. It, Satan will use anybody. Um, so he says to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew why he said it to him. Some were supposing because you, uh, Yehuda had the bag, that he was going to go and buy what they needed for the festival or they should give something to the poor. So here's another question for you. They were supposing and understanding that when he sent Judas out to get something and he had the money, they thought he was going to go buy something for the festival. What festival? Passover. Right? Because Jesus dies on Passover, which is the next day. So this is Nisan 13, not Nisan 14. So the Last Supper was not a Passover meal. It was just a regular meal. Getting ready for the Passover. Um, just a little tidbit there if you want to highlight that and make a note there. Um, so uh, then it says, you know, that he, he took the bread and he went out uh, and it was nighttime. Let's go back. Let's go to verse 31. 
So in verse 31, when Judas goes out, Yeshua says, now the son of Adam or the son of man is glorified, or in the Scripture's version it says, the son of Adam is esteemed, has been esteemed, and Elohim has been esteemed in him, glorified, if you will, in Yeshua. He says, if Elohim, if God has been glorified, let me say it this way, if he has been glorified in him, uh, God shall also glorify him in himself and immediately or straightway glorify him. This is fascinating. How many times have you heard, or maybe you might not remember this, but I know that growing up and in school and everything, you'd hear this constantly, that Jesus was glorified at the resurrection. His glorification happened at the resurrection. Yeshua right here says, Judas goes out, and Jesus says, now I have been glorified. And my father has been glorified in me, and my father will glorify himself through me. And immediately the glorification happened. So Jesus doesn't separate the death, burial from the resurrection and ascension. It's all one thing. And he knows he offered this to Judas. This was the tipping point. In other words, history could have moved, although God knows everything and all that. I get that. But we also still have a free will. So he goes through this act, and he offers Judas this morsel. Judas could have chosen to stay. He could have chosen to admit what he had already been planning. He could have taken it, broken down in tears, and said, I can't. I can't do this. This is what's been going on, Jesus, please forgive me. He didn't. Once he took that and Satan literally entered into him and he went out the door, everything is now set. There's no, there's no turning back. It will not change. This, that real, the, it's like this incredible clock started and there was nothing anybody would be able to do to change it. Yeshua knows this and he goes, right now, I've been glorified. I think in his mind, he knew I'm dead. Not only that, hours away, the cross is coming. There's there's no change in this. Verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You shall seek me. Then look at this. And as I said to the Yehudim, as I said this to the Jews before, he's reminding them, where I'm going, you're unable to come. And now also, I I now also say to you, so he's he's reminding them, he says, you remember when I said this to the Jews, that I'm going somewhere and you're not going to be able to follow me? I'm now saying the same thing to you. Interesting, right? Because how many times do we read that and think, well, what he's talking about is I'm going to heaven, but they're going to go to hell, right? We kind of think that way. When he's talking to the Jews, he's saying, I'm going to heaven, but you're not going to go to heaven. He's talking about physically, I'm going somewhere where you can't come physically. And you're going to look for me. You're not going to be able to find me because of where I'm going to be physically. Those who receive the ones I send have received me, and those that are receiving me are receiving the Father who sent me. This is where we are his ambassadors, and it's like Jesus really is here because we're supposed to be representing him. Folks, this also goes all the way back to the garden when God created us, and he created us to be a reflection of his image, or as Dr. Heiser puts it, we are to be his imagers. That's what the term really means. It's not so much just a reflection. We are like this copy. He put his his mark, his name, his spirit within our DNA. There is no other creature that God created that he gave the power and the physical ability to procreate another imager. Humanity is 
unique, unlike any other angelic being or any other physical being that has ever walked on this earth. Nobody else can do that. Cannot create another being in the image of God. But God gave that to us because he wanted us to fill this earth with his image and be connected to him and reflect him and rule and reign over it. I've said this before, but why do you think it made Satan so mad? He was the top dog. And then God made us with a unique ability and a unique impression upon us with the very image of the great and mighty, most high Elohim above all other Elohim. And then he said, and I want you to go make more and fill this earth and rule and reign over it. And everything that walks on it, you rule over it. Little question, was Satan walking on the earth? Even when he came up to deceive Eve. And who was the queen? Eve. Adam and Eve were the king and queen over the earth, basically. Not Lucifer. I think that God creating us in his image and giving us that ability is what made Satan jealous. That's my opinion. You really can't back that up necessarily with scripture, but to me, it's the only thing that really makes sense. I do not believe we are cannon fodder. I do not believe that we are just collateral damage in a holy, unseen realm war. There's a reason why Satan is fighting constantly on this earth with us and hounding us and hounding Jesus and hounding the Jew. It's because God made us in his image to create other little imagers in his image to reign and rule this earth. And we have forgotten who we are, who we were, and what we were created to do. And because of that, we don't even know the God we're serving clearly and we don't understand our job, and we spend most of our time just trying to survive. Hmm, kind of like Judas, just doing our thing. And Peter, who ends up doing something dumb because he wants to survive. So let me, let me go on. Verse 34. Here in the Scriptures version, it says, A new command, I, or a renewed command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Let me go ahead and read verse 35. By this shall all know that you are my taught ones or my disciples if you have love for one another. Interesting, because here in the Scriptures version, it says a renewed command I give you. If you've got the New American Standard, probably the NIV, almost any other version, it's going to say a new commandment I give you, right? You ever heard that? Which is interesting because it's not new. Um, Leviticus 19.18, you might want to jot that down. You don't have it in your notes. Leviticus 19.18, do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the children of your people, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahovah. This isn't a new command. The newness of the command is you're to love them, love your neighbor as yourself, even as I have loved you. If there's any addendum to this commandment is, Yeshua is saying, I'm living this out in an incredible way right in front of you with Judas and in a few hours, Peter. And actually all the rest of you because they all scatter when he's arrested. Uh, I'm living it out for you of what this means to love your neighbor as yourself. It means to love your neighbor even over yourself. Put them above your own needs that you think you have. 
He needed the sustenance and gave it away to that one that would betray him. How much more should we be loving and forgiving towards one another? That'd be a rare commodity in the church, wouldn't it? I've had people, leadership people, Southern Bap- that worked in the Southern Baptist Convention, tell me that, you know what? We, yeah, we have a lot of church splits, but God uses it anyhow. And look at all the ways that it's growing. And I go, well, okay. That sounds like good leadership, but it's definitely not godly. I mean, there are people that can be millionaires working for companies that build boxes, cardboard boxes. Well, they make cardboard boxes. There's multimillionaires making cardboard boxes. What's a cardboard box? Well, you probably get one all the time if you buy stuff from Amazon or do any kind of online shopping, right? Doesn't matter. I'm just saying it doesn't matter what it is. It's about leadership. You, you can do anything with good leadership. That doesn't, that doesn't equate with uh, holiness or walking with God. It just means that you can make something happen. Um, he's saying you're to love each other with this kind of love. Even when someone betrays you, you should love them. That's not easy, is it? Let's be honest. Isn't it so much easier to lash out because you were wronged, right? And especially if it's even in, within the fellowship. I've seen it so many times. People come and go and they get you know, all upset because somebody said something or said something the wrong way. Or, the, or I didn't go see them or something when something was going on. And, you know, because after all, I am perfect, y'all know. I mean, you know, I, I, it, it's, just, it's, it's amazing. He goes, this note I got from uh, one of the commentaries I was reading says, the command is new in that it is a special love for other believers based on the sacrificial love of Jesus. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Christians love and support for one another enable them to survive in a hostile world. As Jesus was the embodiment of God's love, so now each disciple should embody Christ's love. This love is a sign to the world as well to every believer. I'm going to get to what Jesus said, but listen to what John says again in 1 John. You might, you're going to have to write this one down. It's not in your notes. 1 John 3, 14. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one not loving his brother stays in death. You're starting to see this connection If Yeshua is living in you, then that means the Father is living in you, and the Father and the Son so loved the world that the Son died on the cross for us. And he gave us the example of, I'm going to give this man that's going to betray me, the Son of God, the creator of the universe. It's like him saying, I made you. I breathed life into your nostrils and I'm going to give you a symbol of friendship and I mean it. Whether it's accepted or not on, on our terms, that's not how we're supposed to be living, people. John says that if we don't love each other with that kind of love, we're staying in death and destruction. Even if you're showing up for church, even if you look good and know all the songs. But if there's unforgiveness in your heart, well, you're not walking with God. Look at what he says in verse 35, because he's telling them, this is this renewed command, this this addendum I'm going to add to this command that you love one another as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. Then he says, by this shall all know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. By this, this is how you, the people and the world will know that you are truly mine. 
They're not going to know you're truly mine if you wear a crucifix. If you travel to Jerusalem once a year, if you put ashes on your forehead or you fast on these days or you don't eat meat on these days and only or or whatever it is that you do or if you you know put your Igthus Jesus bumper stickers on your car if you do that please drive like you're a follower of Christ none of those things they're going to know you're my disciples if you go to church every weekend and you tithe 10%. Or if you're really holy, 15%. And if you're really walking with God, 20%. <laughs> None of those things. Jesus says, this is how everyone's going to know if you're truly my disciples. If you love the brethren. If you have love for one another. Isn't it amazing? Obviously, Jesus knows that we Christians are idiots, right? Because before he even dies, he goes, this is how the world will know that you are truly my disciples. If you can figure out how to get along and love each other with this kind of love, which is exactly what God told him in the Torah and the Old Testament, this is how you live your life. This is how you get along with one another. This is what you do when someone wrongs you. This is how you handle this stuff. This is what happens in a society when something happens close to them that they know is wrong. As a society, they deal with it. If someone died out in the field and they couldn't figure out how, it, how all this happened, the closest town to where that happened, they were to make atonement for that so that the blood on the ground would be dealt with. So take care of it. Do, just simply do what's right. You know what we do? We do what is legal and with all the legal loopholes and what we can get away with. God says, if no one knows and you can't figure it out, then you literally Walk it out, map it out, the closest town, you deal with it. Make it right. We are, well, you know, I I didn't see it. I wasn't there. I don't know. You know, it's not my responsibility. Well, it is. That's how we're, we're just supposed to do what's right. Amen? Common sense, right. Moral, decent, just honorable, godly. And Jesus says, this is how they're going to know is that if you love one another. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, this is how they're going to know is if all of you can figure out how to love those that hate you outside the church. You know, love the world. Love, love. In other words, he didn't say, I'll say it the way my grandmother used to say it. You go out there and you love them heathens. She'd call them heathens, you know. He doesn't say that. He says, among yourself, love one another. This is how the world is supposed to know that we are truly followers of Yeshua. Now, this is where it gets amazing, and I'm going to close here. So he said all of that. Don't you just love Pete? I love Pete. I guess because I can relate so much to Pete. He's just always talking before he's thinking or he's thinking on the, he's on a different track. This is all the stuff that Jesus has been saying. And Peter's over there, you can see, I guess his mind's just doing this. And he goes, so where are you going? Right? He's been saying all this stuff, doing all this. Now I'm being glorified. The Father's being glorified through me. Man, ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now where are you going? <laughs> So in verse 36, it says, Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, he said to him, Master, where are you going? <laughs> Yeshua answered him, says, where I'm going, you're not able to follow me now. Now he's doing a little bit more clarification. You're not going to follow me now, but afterwards you will follow me. <clears throat> I want you to pay attention here that Peter, even though he loves Yeshua, he loves God. 
No, I don't believe anybody here doubts the fact that Peter loved Jesus. Um, Jesus is talking about this stuff, and he can't really wrap his brain around it. None of them can. They're not really sure what he's talking about when he's talking about, about Judas. They, they didn't catch that. So because they're not catching it, Jesus said, I'm telling you now, just the same way I told the Jews, that I'm going to go someplace, but you can't follow me. The whole time after that, Peter's sitting there going, well, now, what's he talking about then? Because I remember him talking, telling that to the Jews and stuff. And I don't know who knows what Peter was thinking when Jesus said that the first time. Now he's going, okay, whatever. And he seizes his moment. I guess, you know, Jesus takes a breath. <gasps> you know, <laughs> now, now Peter, hey, by the way, Jesus, where are you going? He's focused on what? He's focused on his relationship and closeness with Jesus and he doesn't want Jesus going anywhere where he can't go. He doesn't want to be separated from Jesus. That's, and that's good, right? That's an honorable desire and an honorable heart. He's like, he, so he's sitting there going, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. What are you talking about? You're going somewhere and I can't go. Talk about them Jews now over there, you know, them, them Pharisees. I kind of get that because they're idiots, you know, but hey, we're, we're part of the in crowd, right? Uh, can you just, I mean, because Peter, it's Pete. Peter, James, and John, you know, they're the, they're the three amigos always walking right there with Jesus. They're the, they're the closest ones to Jesus, and he's sitting there going, time, hope, whoa, time out. What, what, what are you talking about? You're going somewhere, and I can't come. I walked on the water. I mean, I'm just using it as an example that he's understanding his closeness to Jesus. He's had this attitude, I'll get out of the boat and walk on water if that means I can come to you, Jesus. So that's his attitude. And now he's saying, well, you're saying you're going somewhere and I can't go? This is not adding up because you're not going anywhere I'm not going. That's his attitude. So he says, you're not going to be able to follow me now, but afterwards you will be able to. And then look at what he says. This is where he says this. Peter says to him, Master, why am I unable, unable to follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Yeshua answered him, shall you lay down your life for me? You really going to lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, here it is again. Now I'm telling you the truth, Pete. This is in front of everybody. This isn't private. Remember, he's having this discussion with all of them there. Judas has gone out. He's telling them all these things. Peter jumps in. What are you talking about? You're going somewhere and I can't go. Da, 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 da. And then Jesus now says, Pete, truly, truly, we'll tell you something. Before the cock crows, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. Now, here's what's amazing about that statement. You have to remember they don't know that Judas is the betrayer. Is it possible that some of them thought, Peter? Peter is going to betray him? What? I think that had to have gone through their minds if you just get into the, what was going on there because they don't know it's Judas. They're all wondering if it's them. Jesus, Jesus makes a comment to John privately. They haven't had time to discuss all this stuff. There's too much going on. Their emotions are all over the place. And he says, this, before, the, before morning happens, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. What? So watch this. Um, I think that it's... It's doubtful. We, we need to remember that the rest of these events leading up to the death of Yeshua is only going to take hours, not days, hours. It's doubtful to me that the disciples spent much time considering and talking about Yeshua's statement of betrayal while they are worried about being arrested themselves and being on an emotional wreck because of Yeshua's death even that does happen only hours later. You have to remember, Paul, John is writing this after the fact, some, uh, about 64, 60, I think. Uh, it's about 30 years past, uh, and he's writing this stuff down. 
Um, Here we see the connection or comparison between Peter and Judas. Peter did not know himself as well as he thought. I would say neither do any of us here. He thought he would be willing to lay down his life for Yeshua, but fear ruled over him in the midst of the ordeal. Judas thought he could help push the agenda forward, but evil was looking for an accomplice. The defining character trait of true followers of Yeshua is loving others over our own needs or plans. Now watch this. Peter does end up denying him. But, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but when Jesus is arrested, Peter was ready to die. But he wasn't willing to lay down his life. (laughs) He was willing to take a few with him. He took a sword with him cuts off Malchus, which is the high priest's servant's ear. I've said forever, and I hold to this, Peter wasn't a swordsman, he was a fisherman. He knew how to gut fish. I'm pretty sure he was trying to cut the man's head off. He wasn't, you know, yeah, he wasn't like Zorro trying to, you know, just lop off his ear and teach him a lesson. I believe he was swinging that short sword and was trying to lop his head off, and he ducked. I believe he just missed. And remember, Yeshua then says, put up your sword, Peter. Those that take up the sword will die by the sword. That's not how we're doing it. When that happened, confusion set in. Well, then I don't, I don't understand anything. And then later, that's when he gets scared and, and he, he, uh, he denies that he know, knows him. But the difference between the two, Peter's actions we're always motivated out of love. Love for God. He loved Yeshua. He was broken that he denied him. Broken. Judas was broken when he realized this is not going to turn out the way I thought and I'm going to kill an innocent man. Or I have killed an innocent man. And maybe that, by that he's thinking maybe he's not even really the Messiah because it was totally opposite of what he thought. Peter, on the other hand, they both failed, and they both failed miserably in the heat of the moment. But Peter at least was motivated by love, and love brought him back from his perspective and from God's perspective. Love brought him back. Love drove him to run out there to the garden on Sunday morning. Love brought him back because that's what was motivating him. And folks, the motivating thing in us towards each other, towards our families, towards our fellowship, should be love. Amen. That we, we should not turn our back on anybody. Watch this. No matter what they've done. I can't tell you the countless times in my years in ministry where Christians go, you know what, I'm done. When I've had the same attitude at times, that just just not gonna not gonna do that. Um, yet it says that the motivating the 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 way the world will know that we are true followers of Jesus of Yeshua is when we learn to love each other no matter what we've done. Peter denied Yeshua three times while he's on trial, being beaten, spit on, and everything else that's going on, and he literally calls down a curse on himself. 
in the heat of the moment that I don't know him. You guys are wrong. Yet there is no indication that the other disciples hated him for it. You and I are way too quick to judge. All of us in this room, we, we've done it. We do it. We need to stop. Um, we just we got to work on loving each other. And loving each other also means, you know, we passionately pursue one another. Care about one another. Always, I think we should always think and assume and hope the best in each other and the best that God has for each other instead of constantly waiting for that person to mess up. We do that out of a hurt heart. I've been hurt this time, hurt that time. I ain't trusting nobody anymore. Can anybody relate? Oh, they've done this, done that. No, no, no. How many people? How many times have you run across people who don't even go to church anymore because the church hurt them? They've lost the ability to trust and hope. We should see people the way God sees us as broken, messed up people waiting for the total final redemption because a lot of us don't even know who we are. We don't know what God has created us to be. We either think that we're preachers or carpenters or photographers or coaches. or what. That's what we see ourselves as. One of the first things, what do you do for a living? So we describe what we do for a living because after all, that's how we get our sense of self-worth. That's just how you make money. That's not who you are. You're an imager of the Most High God on a planet that he created for you to be a king or queen here, reigning and ruling in his stead as his ambassadors on this earth to a seen and unseen realm that our God is God. And you do whatever you do to put food in your belly, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head. But that is not who you are. And guys, trust me, we're the worst. Your husband will not tell you that. Most guys will not tell you that. But we're the worst at getting our sense of self-worth out of our jobs and success and money and taking care of our families and being the best. I'm getting into marriage counseling, but that's a fact. We're the worst at it. And then we bleed that over and bleed it over even into our kids. And then even bleed it over into our wives and everybody else around us. Instead of trying to teach me, do you know that you're an image of the Most High God? You are a princess in his kingdom. I mean, that's who we are. This is true power of the love of God to transform the world. It's in this room. Our ability to love each other, care for each other, expect the best out of each other, never get tired of each other. You have to work at that one. Because we don't all smell the same. We don't all eat the same. <laughs> right? Some of us got some weird uncles and aunts, you know, we got some warts, all that. You're supposed to look past all of that and love each other the way God loves us and loved us. And if he can forgive me, and if he can forgive you, if he can bring you into the kingdom, if he can bring you into the kingdom, he can bring anybody into the kingdom. Amen. And if he can redeem this, then he wants to use what the world thinks is unredeemable and prove that he is the great redeemer through that, through you and I. But the way that happens, it's weird. It's in here. 
And then what happens in here leaks out out there. And I'm telling you, the world is dying. It is shriveling up, lifeless, looking for honest, true, godly, love, companionship, family, community. That's why the world is going crazy and finding like-minded crazies to see how crazy it can get because they're trying to fill a void that only God can fill. And he's called us to be that example. Man, God loves you so much that on the night he was betrayed, it's like him offering you and I a morsel saying, this is what I have for you. Don't betray my friendship. Love one another. Forgive one another. Be compassionate towards one another. Actually care about one another. Actually care. 